weeks and we get through a whole chapter? Kyle's excited. He's tired of this already. Man, thank y'all for the testimony this morning. Um, you know, we're, so today we're going to wrap up chapter, chapter 7, and it's an incredible example, a very, very powerful example of Jesus' love and his forgiveness. You know, we, we began chapter 7, and Jesus had just finished teaching just the disciples. Like, I made a point to, to, to explain that over and over and over again. Jesus does this, this whole message with them, and it, Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain, other other authors call it the Sermon on the Mount, but it's this moment where Jesus does this really intense teaching with the disciples to help them understand who he is and what the kingdom of God is going to look like. And then on the heels of that, Luke begins chapter 7 where Jesus is now back out. He's resumed his public ministry. Um, and so he's, he's doing some important stuff. I want us to remember as we look at this story today that Luke didn't write this book in chronological order. For him, it was more important to arrange this in what he called an orderly way so that that he, so that Theopolis, so that any of us that reads this book can see who Jesus is. Luke's goal was to prove for himself and for Theopolis and for you and I that Jesus was the Messiah. That was his end goal. He had heard this teaching from Paul and he thought, I got to go research this for myself. So he went out and did, you know, eyewitness testimonies and that's how he compiles this book. But he's, he's trying to get a question answered for himself, for Theopolis, for us. And that question is, who is Jesus? That's what he's trying to, to understand. So Luke shares these stories of Jesus' interactions with a lot of different people from a lot of different walks of life. And these stories reveal the kind of person that Jesus was and how he interacted with these people. And ultimately, what he's trying to get us to understand and what, he, and what I think he does do very well is to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. We've learned a couple of things. The first story that we started out with in chapter 7 is the story of Jesus healing the centurion servant. That was out of Luke chapter 7 verse 1 through 10. And Luke points out and he wants us to understand that this centurion was not a Hebrew. He was a Gentile. And, and even more than that, he was a Roman officer. And so he's outside of the Jewish faith. And in, in this interaction, Jesus affirms and uplifts the faith of this Gentile Roman officer. And he heals the servant because of the faith of this Roman officer. And he's revealing that, that his power and his love, God's power, God's love, extend beyond just the Hebrew people. It went further than God's people expected. And then the second story we looked at from Luke 7, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 11 through 17, is where Jesus raises the widow's son from the dead. This is the passage that Carrie preached on. And this story shows yet another example of an unexpected Jesus. It reveals his authority over life, but also over death. It shows how much he cared for this widow. It's an echoing of the Old Testament scripture where God is telling the Israelite people to care for the widows and for the orphans. It, it reveals in, in both of these things that Jesus, it, it's calling back to, Carrie talked about how in this village of Nain that, was it Elijah? I forgot now, I had a little brain fart. Elisha raised uh, someone from the dead and Jesus does the same thing in the same region. It's calling people's attention back to what God had done. And Jesus is proving that he's not acting in his own authority, but he's acting upon the authority that's given to him by God. And then last week, Luke tells us about John the Baptist questioning if Jesus was the Messiah. That was in Luke 7, 18 through 35. And Luke uses John's doubt to answer this question, who is Jesus? Luke shows us through Jesus' response that Jesus was different than the Hebrew people expected. 
Jesus tells John the Baptist to look at the works that he's been doing for the answer to the question he's asking, are you the Messiah? And even in his doubt, Jesus lovingly affirms John. And then he proclaims his greatness to all those that are listening. This crowd that's present, he's telling them that of all men born, there's none greater than John the Baptist. But John the Baptist is the least of those that are in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus addresses the doubt that creeps into our lives. That when we're going through hard things and we're asking ourselves questions like, God, are you here with me? Are you still listening? Some of the the things that Mike was testifying to this morning is that God is saying, yeah, I'm here. Even when when you don't trust me, even when you're unsure about whether or not I am who I say I am, I'm still here. And then Jesus ends that teaching with a promise. The promise is that if we'll follow him, if we'll listen to his voice, if we'll obey the things that he says, his righteousness is going to be revealed to the world around us. The, the interaction we had with Lizzie's friends yesterday, what they were seeing is not me and not Bethany. What they're seeing is Jesus' love coming through us. It's not about us. It's about who lives in us. Today, in the final story of this chapter, <laughs> thank you. Look at them. Oh, Anna hit the button, didn't she? <laughs> My girl. My girl. So today... The final story of this chapter is Luke reveals this scandalous love and forgiveness that Jesus offers people. So let's read this story together. It's a long one. We can do it. We're going to read verses uh, 36 through 50. I've told you all before, I like to read these things in one big chunk so we kind of get the whole picture and then we'll go through and we'll kind of break it down. So if you would, let's jump in here together. Luke chapter 7, we'll read verse 36 through 50. Okay, and remember, this is on the heels of what happened last week. It says, then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him, invites Jesus. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. And she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You've judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, Her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved so much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Man, this is such a cool story for a couple of different reasons. I want to point out a few things uh, before we really dive into this thing. First of all, they're back in Nain. The last story that we, we read last week was in Galilee, but now they're back in the city of Nain. Remember, this is the place where Jesus raised the widow's son. 
So when his presence is there, I don't know, because Luke didn't write this chronological order, we don't know if he left Nain and went to Galilee and then came back, or if he's been in Nain this whole time. Regardless, when Jesus shows up, people know who he is now. You raise somebody from the dead, it, it's a big deal, right? People are going to be talking about that. And so Jesus' presence is known. So this woman finds out that Jesus is at Simon's house, who's a Pharisee, and so she goes there, okay? The second thing is, is that Luke doesn't tell us this woman's name. There is some speculation from, goes way back in history that this was, like in the Middle Ages, that this was Mary Magdalene, but there's no evidence of that. And it would have been really odd for Luke to introduce Mary the way he's going to in the next section, we'll, we'll read that next week, if this was the same woman, okay? But what I want us to see is that her identity is not important to the point that Luke is trying to make here. The point is her faith and Jesus' response to that faith, not who she is. So Luke starts off this story by telling us that Simon invites him to come and eat with him in his house. And the woman in the story hears that Jesus is at Simon's house, and she goes to find him. And when she gets there, she does what may seem odd to us. It might, I have a feeling it felt odd to the people when it says that she's behind him washing her feet. Uh, y'all have probably heard somebody explain this before, but in, in that culture, their tables did not look like our tables. They weren't sitting in a chair like you're sitting at. They're like laying on a, a pillow, kind of reclined. You know, y'all have seen pictures of the Last Supper. They're kind of leaned over, and so his feet would have been behind him. And so she comes in and begins to wash her feet with her tears and wipe it with her hair. Um, these actions that she's doing, even though they may seem odd to us, I want us to see that the things that she's doing are culturally appropriate. Washing your feet when you entered someone's house, greeting them with a kiss, anointing your, your guest's head with olive oil. None of those are required. But they were gestures of hospitality. It was a way of saying to someone, come in, enjoy this meal, refresh yourself. They, they wore sandals and there was dust. And, and you know how it is. To, like, have you ever tried to eat with grimy hands? It just feels gross, right? Same thing with, with your feet sometimes. You're like, man, I just, I just need to wash my feet, right? It was a way to, to, to show hospitality to someone, to someone else. And while her avenue of delivering these gestures wasn't customary, the meaning behind them very much was. She approached Jesus this way because she wasn't formally invited to this party. She heard, kind of like Bethany and I last night, we crashed somebody else's party. Like she heard this thing was happening, was like, oh, I'm going to that, right? But even though she crashed the party, it was culturally appropriate. One of my commentaries this week said the woman took advantage of the social customs that permitted needy people to visit such a banquet to receive some of the leftovers. She came specifically to see Jesus bringing a jar or a little bottle of perfume. So it was culturally appropriate for her to, to enter this setting, but she didn't go for what was customary. She went to do something else. And at this point, her actions are just too much for Simon to deal with. And he's, you know, it, he's not saying anything, but he's thinking. Remember, I've told you, anytime Jesus replies to someone's thoughts, it's never, it never goes well for them, right? There's a, a point that he's trying to make. I love Carrie this morning's testimony. He said, I don't want pride in my life, but I also don't want anybody to point it out. That's what's happening in this story, right? But point number one I want to make today is that Jesus knows our hearts and our thoughts. That may seem a little unsettling, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. Many times we've seen Jesus respond to what someone else is thinking. Jesus knows what's happening in this man's heart who has invited him to dinner. Okay? And he also shows us that he sees and he knows of this woman washing, drying, kissing, and anointing his feet. And not only does he know what we're, not only does Jesus know what we're thinking, but he challenges what we're thinking. That's what Carrie was testifying to this morning. Jesus challenges these religious leaders thinking 
by telling them a story. I want us to look at this again in verse 41 through 43. He says to the Pharisee, a creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one who forgave more. And Jesus responds, you have judged correctly. Okay, a denarii was about a day's wage. Okay, so to owe somebody 500 denarii would have been an insurmountable debt, way bigger than you could ever pay back. Whereas to only owe 50 would have been about two months worth of wages, and that would have been more manageable to repay. So not only does Jesus tell this story about this great debt and this lesser debt, but he does something interesting. He makes Simon give him an answer. He asks the story, and he asks him to answer out loud which of these two men will be more grateful. In doing this, Jesus is disarming Simon. He's taking the power of judgment away from Simon by making him answer the question. He's taking the focus off the judgment and putting it on the great value of the forgiveness and the appropriate response to such a grace. So look at this woman and what she's doing again. Verse 44, it says, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my face since, or my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. What I want us to see, what I want us to understand, what Luke wants us to understand is that her actions show the state of her heart. And Jesus is causing Simon, amen, right? Jesus is causing Simon to contrast the condition of his heart with the condition of her heart. And he's pointing out the difference between the two. Last week, we discussed that Jesus' actions prove who he is. And the same is true for us. Our actions, our thoughts prove who we are on the inside. Point number two for today is that this woman's actions are in response to the forgiveness that Jesus has given. Okay, she's not doing this to gain forgiveness. And it is of the utmost importance that we understand that. This is not her attempt to gain Jesus' forgiveness or his approval. It is an overflow of what has already happened in her life. In verse 47 and 48, when Jesus says that her sins are forgiven, he's not forgiving her in response to her actions. Rather, her actions are the proof that she's already received that forgiveness. Look at verse 47 and 48. It says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved so much. But the one who is Forgiven little loves little. In verse 48 he says, Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Jesus points out that her actions are the response to what she's already experienced. Because she's been forgiven, she loves so much. And Jesus compares her great love with this little love, if you will, of Simon. That Simon didn't love him enough to even show him general hospitality. Both of their actions are revealing the conditions of their heart. How they feel about Jesus. And because Simon didn't receive Christ as a Messiah, he doesn't understand what this woman is doing. He doesn't get it. We read about this last week in chapter 7, verse 29 and 30. Flip back there with me real quick. Because Jesus says, uh, and when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But since the Pharisees and the experts in the law had not been baptized by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. The religious leaders 
at that time held a very specific view of who the Messiah would be. And like we talked about last week, because their expectations had blinded them, because they thought Jesus was going to be a certain way or a certain kind of person, they didn't see Jesus. But not this woman. This woman sees him. Like the others that are, that are referenced in verse 29 in chapter 7, she recognizes God's way of righteousness. She placed her faith and her trust in Jesus and experienced the forgiveness of God. As recorded by John, this love that she felt from Jesus resulted in a loving response. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, the Apostle John says, We love because he first loved us. This is why the woman entered uninvited. This is why she wept at Jesus' feet. This is why she, she washed his feet with her tears, why she dried it with her hair, why she kissed his feet, why she anointed his feet with perfume. She's doing what she could to show her appreciation for the one that loved her first. As we can see, those seated at the table did not understand what was happening. In verse 49, they say, who is this man that even forgives sins? They still didn't get it. Again, we see the echo of this question that Luke is working to answer. It's very masterful of his use of this man's question to prove who is Jesus. And this is not the first time the religious leaders have asked this question when Jesus did this. Back in Luke chapter 5 and verse 21, it said, Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? This is on the heels of when Jesus healed the paralytic man when his friends couldn't get in the house and they tore the roof out and they lowered him down. And Jesus said, because of the faith of your friends, get up and take your mat and go home and walk. And they're like, who is this guy, right? Jesus reveals who he is to the people present at that dinner. He reveals to them that Jesus is the Son of God. What the religious leaders failed to see was obvious to everyone else. In response uh, over and over, we see these stories in Luke where ordinary people are putting their faith in Jesus. And in response to their faith, Jesus is doing these incredible things in their lives. And these actions from Jesus were him exercising his divine right to forgive, to heal, and to restore people. This is why he came. One of my, my commentaries referenced John chapter 12, verse 44 through 50. I want to read that today. It says, Jesus cried out, the one who believes in me the one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light in the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything that I have said. I know that this command is eternal life, so the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus came to redeem us. We've talked about that so much. He came to redeem us and to restore the world back to himself. To reveal what had been hidden. To open the sight of the blind. To heal the broken. To bring home the lost. And there are people around Jesus who saw and heard the same things that the woman that we read about today have seen and heard. But there is a distinct difference in their response to this thing. Some believed and some did not. And Luke is making it plain 
that those who believe in Jesus are the ones who are being saved. This is point number four for today is that salvation is based on our faith alone. Church, this is so important that we understand this. This is the most important part of this whole interaction between all of those that are present at this dinner party. This is where so many people have been led astray. It's easy to read this story and to walk away thinking that because of this woman's actions, Jesus forgave her. But that's the opposite of the gospel. And that's why I wanted to take so much time to talk about this response is in result to her forgiveness and not the other way around. Jesus concludes this conversation by making it clear that it was her faith that saved her. In verse 50, it says, And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. American church culture is going to try to convince us, has tried to convince us, for me most of my life or all of my life, probably the same for you, that proper behavior, church attendance, all these different religious-based activities is what's going to earn us God's favor. It's going to justify us. It's going to give us the forgiveness that we long for. But Jesus says something very different from that. He acknowledges that her sins are many, right? In verse 47, he says, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loves so much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Her forgiveness isn't based on her actions. The opposite of that, in fact, our behavior, church, previous or future mistakes do not change God's love for us. Jesus acknowledges her sin and still affirms the forgiveness that she's received. I want you to think about that. He's acknowledging the fact that she has many sins in her life. We don't know her life. There's been assumptions made about what kind of woman this is. There are assumptions. But what Jesus tells us is that there are many sins in her life. And what I know to be true is that there is many sins in my life. There's many sins in all of our lives. And Jesus looks at, acknowledges, and says, in spite of that, you are forgiven. And then this woman is acting this way in response to the forgiveness that she's received. She sees it. She sees the value of what has been given to her. Not only did she receive this forgiveness, but she received salvation. It says uh, her salvation, once again, was not the result of her actions. It was the result of her faith. In verse 50, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She didn't just receive forgiveness. She received salvation. I titled this message, Scandalous Love and Forgiveness of Jesus, because in her culture and in ours today, this kind of grace is scandalous. Think about if we treated other people in the same way that Jesus treats this woman. It would be unheard of, right? To give that kind of love and forgiveness freely to the people around us. It would be scandalous. People would say, what is wrong with you? Do you not seek justice? This unheard of kind of relationship, this unheard of, this scandalous love and grace is a rarely heard message. Yet it has the biggest impact on the world. As Jesus was ministering to people, they felt his love. They felt his forgiveness. They experienced his salvation. But the religious have gotten in the way. In this story, the religious leaders were in the way. They were communicating the wrong things. They were expecting the wrong things. And this leads us to ask some questions. 
Are we the religious that are in the way? Are we miscommunicating who God is? Are we preaching a gospel that says forgiveness and salvation are a gift from all? Or are we saying that forgiveness and salvation is a gift for some if you do the right things? Are we requiring that people meet some standard that we have put in place? Or are we loving like Jesus and seeing the people in our lives and acknowledging the fact that they have sin? We don't have to point it out. Jesus didn't have to point it out to this woman. She knew she was a sinner. That's why she responds that way. And what does he meet her with? He meets her with forgiveness. He meets her with love. This grace that we've been offered, it was costly to Jesus. It cost him his life, but it's free for us. Jesus did that because he loves us. I want to remind us again that God sent the law so that we could see our need for God. The law was never meant to redeem us. The law was meant to show us that we needed to be redeemed. But just like the religious people of Jesus' day, often we still hold ourselves and we hold others to this level of protection or level of perfection in order to be loved by God. And that's not the gospel. That's the law. It's the anti-gospel. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 3 through 4, for what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Paul is saying what we could not do, Jesus did on our behalf. And when this woman is behind Jesus in the house of the religious leaders. The religious leaders respond to her with judgment and condemnation. But Jesus responds to her with love, with forgiveness, with grace. And so what we need to ask ourselves is how are we responding to the people in our lives? Jesus has done all that God requires. His perfection is passed to us when we trust Him and we place our faith in Him. And when God sees us as His followers, He no longer sees our sins. He sees the perfection of Jesus. And church, we have to learn to see people in the same way. That when we encounter people who have sin, just like we do, that we don't set a set of standards and say, they got to live up to this before they're worthy of my time or my love or my affection. We have to see them right where they are, just like Jesus sees us right where we are, in the middle of their sin, and say, I love you. Not because they have earned it, because we're called to give it. We're called to be like Jesus, to love as he loved. Jesus' perfection is passed on to us. And when we trust that his perfection is enough to satisfy God, it changes the way we see the world around us. The problem with our culture is that we don't trust Jesus. We look at the, our own sins and our own lives and we say, I am not worthy or this thing in me cannot be fixed. But church, I want to tell you the only way it ever is fixed is by what Kerry pointed out today, is that God revealed his pride, he acknowledged it, and then he was able to move beyond that. Bethany and I had dinner with a couple last night who talked about their, they've been married less than 10 years and they've talked about the amount of growth that they've had as they've learned to talk about the hard things in life. That's how we grow, is we look at the stuff that we're struggling with and we have a conversation with God about it or we have a conversation with another believer about it and what we do in the middle of that is we acknowledge our sin and then we receive the grace, the forgiveness that God offers. 
We don't cast judgment or condemnation on ourselves and, and say, I'm such a horrible person. How could God ever love me? We look at our own lives, we look at our own sin, and we acknowledge it and say, God, I don't want to be like this anymore. But I need you to, to fix it. We don't trust God enough because we want to be a part of that process of perfection because we want to be able to go, look at this thing I did. I'm a better person because I worked really hard. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not how it works. Your, your attempts at obedience to the law is not going to make you perfect. It's going to actually push you further away from me. Jesus makes it clear in his interaction with this woman in our story today that her faith was enough. This is the gospel that we need to preach to ourselves and we need to preach to our culture is that Jesus is enough. Not Jesus plus me is enough. Jesus is enough. This message is scandalous because it takes the power away from religious leaders, from religious organizations, and it places it back where it's supposed to be, in the hands of Jesus. Glenn said one time, if you preach grace well enough, people will stop coming to church because they realize they don't have to, right? That's the truth, is we don't have to do anything in order to be pleasing to God. This woman didn't have to fix her life in order to be pleasing to God. We're pleasing to God because He loves us, and what He wants for us is for us to receive that love, to know in our hearts, to not have that struggle in our mind that I'm not good enough, to understand that when Jesus forgave us, God looks at us now and says, you're enough the way you are right now in the middle of your sin. I love you anyway. I know you're going to continue to mess up, and it's okay because I love you anyway because of what Jesus has done. Jesus is enough for, for you, he's enough for me, he's enough for the world. So let's release the power and the control that we fought for for our whole lives. The control to say, no, I have to do things in this way. You have to do things in this way. Release that power, release that control, and let people just have a relationship with Jesus. For that to be their own, to be authentic. To place your faith in a man who lived for you, who died for you, who rose from the dead for you. Jesus knows your heart. He knew the hearts, the heart of Simon. He knew the heart of the woman. And he knows yours. He knew the sins of Simon. He knew the sins of the woman. And he knows your sin. And he loves you. Just like the woman in our store today, he loves you right where you are, in the middle of what you're in. And he forgives you because he loves you. Not because you did something good. Not because you tried real hard. Not because you worshiped real hard or you raised your hand. None of that. Our actions don't change his view of us. Luke aimed to answer the question, who is Jesus? And what he's shown in this chapter, in chapter 7, is that Jesus was, in fact, God's son, the Messiah. And we know that because we see the power that he has to heal. He has the power over life and over death. He has a love that transcends our sin and our doubt. And he has the authority to forgive and to redeem us. He is the Son of God. And God sent him to reveal his character and God's heart to all people. And God sent Jesus to reveal to you how much God loves you. That's the message that we carry. That's it. It's so simple. You don't have to be anything. You don't have to do anything. God loves you the way you are. And he wants to forgive you. 
He wants to, to remove the guilt and the shame that we have learned to live with. That's not normal. It's not supposed to be. God did not create us to live in guilt and shame, and He does not want us to live in guilt and shame anymore. And, and He proved that by sending Jesus. And He offers freedom. He offers joy. He offers love. He offers grace. He offers forgiveness. And all we have to do is say, yeah, I want it. And trust Him to do what He says He's going to do. Let's pray together. Jesus, all we can say is thank you. Thank you, thank you for seeing us where we are and loving us. God, I know that sometimes it's hard for us to even love ourselves. And I thank you for the reassurance through your word that even when we can't love ourselves, you still love us. Father, I ask that in all of our hearts, you to help us to every day to reconcile the fact that you love us regardless of our actions. You want our lives to be better. You don't want us to live in sin. But even when we make mistakes, your love does not change. The way you feel about us does not change. Your response to us does not change. Father, that's a work that only the Holy Spirit can do in our hearts to help us to see ourselves the way that you see us. But Father, until we, until we see that clearly, we're never going to be able to communicate that to other people. We're never going to be able to share that with other people. So Father, as we close in worship tonight, or today, as we, as we spend these next few moments contemplating the word that you have for us and the way that you feel about us, Father, I ask that you would do a supernatural work in our hearts and our minds to get us to a place where we see ourselves the way that you see us, that we feel in a tangible way the love and the forgiveness that you've made available to each of us. Jesus, I ask this for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.